Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to episode 55 of Strangers in the Cinema. I'm Paul Anderson, uh, here with my cartet, uh, my co-host Pete Wall and producer Jack Mills. How are we all, chaps? Paul, first of all, what the hell is a cartet? It's a something from the Dark Tower. Oh, topical. Might yes. be one of the films we're going to talk yes. about today. It's almost like you've done that deliberately. Uh, <laughs> if people only knew the kind of grievous suffering that we've been through for the like, last, what, 90 minutes with various technical problems trying to get this thing off the ground, they would feel, I think, quite a bit of sympathy well, for what us. Time but we're did, still here and we're going to get it done. We, we started setting up about quarter past seven and we've managed to start at nine o'clock. It's now so nine o'clock. It's, it's going well, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's all my fault. Uh, I apologise. Jack got quite down on himself earlier, yeah. uh, so Pete played him. Everybody hurts to gym up a little bit. It, it get, got some and that Anthony and the yeah. Johnsons one as well. Johnson's really got it, got it going again. Yes. Excellent. So, so, how's the week been, Paul? For you, um, anything of interest that you want to talk about before we get into the foyer for the first section of this week's show? Uh, I am nearly, nearly. I say nearly there. I'm getting on very well with my 365 films for the year, Pete. You'd be pleased to know. Okay. I am on now on 257. How many films. of them are short films, Paul? Uh, I think three of them, Pete. And one's a Catherine Ryan special that was on Netflix. You bought this up with me before, <laughs> uh, but it was on Letterbox. I did tag it. Um, yes. But I'm up in my game. No, you're. I mean, you're just blazing a trail, and that's why I'm but slightly I'm, I'm jealous. I'm up in my game. I'm trying to. Uh, and podcast listeners, you may not be aware of this, but I am actually going away in October to get married to Mauritius. Not to. I'm not getting married to Mauritius, but I am getting married in Mauritius. So that's a. Uh, wow. That's a bit of news for you listeners at home, which I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, but the relevance of this is that uh, before I go away, on basically on the sixth of October, uh, I am trying to hit 365 films by that date which means when I come back I won't have to watch any films for the rest of the year so when when (laughs) you hear when you hear on a future episode that the wedding in fact has been cancelled you'll understand that it's because uh, Paul's better half has decided that (laughs) they've spent no time together in the run up to the wedding and therefore uh, this thing but I will have watched 365 films but you'll get there so really you'll be a winner I'm I'm trying to get there before I go away Um, I don't know why I've just decided that that is the challenge that's the challenge yes yeah, and then, you know, we'll see what happens. For the slow rest and of the year. steady, Paul. Slow and steady. I'm I'm limping along towards a respectable 250 by the end of the year. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm going to do my best to get 365, but I think it's going to require sort of days, uh, weekend days with like sort of five or six films in a row if I'm realistically going to get there. So we'll see how that goes. I don't know. Um, yeah. Anything from you, Pete? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking, man. Uh, yeah, I've had a terrific day. I spent most of today constructing solo constructing I should say um, a new bed that I've ordered Um, it was going great until I broke one tiny plastic component which renders the entire bed useless until I get a replacement piece so um, I'm sleeping on an air mattress tonight because I'm incompetent at DIY so it's gone well and then this thing all fucked up so yeah great great start to the week all all, 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 all the way around Yeah, yeah good job well, before we get into the foyer, I would like to wish you both long days and pleasant nights. Oh, thank you. Also from the Dark Tower. Yeah. This is going to get uh, weird. I got, that, I got that one, I think. Thank you, yes. Uh, but yes, let's get to into the foyer. Please. Um, yeah. um, as regular listeners are aware, and new listeners may not be, we take a trip through the proverbial cinema. So we start with Into the Foyer, we drift into popcorn movies, go into feature reviews, and then we're out, basically. So we're in the foyer. This week, Pete, I wanted to chat to you about... Um, 
3D films, but not obviously 3D is quite a, a well-worn topic. But I want to chat about the fact that James Cameron uh, is releasing Terminator 2 in 3D uh, at the end of the month back into the cinemas, which I'm very excited about seeing because I've never seen Terminator 2 on the big screen. I couldn't give a shit that's in 3D. I'm, I'm going to shock you, Paul. Screen. I haven't either. No, okay. So I'm, I'm excited. Which makes sense. Yeah. We're probably not of the age. Right? Yeah, 1991 it came out originally, I think. So. Mm. Um, but also, not, not just that, uh, just also the news that he is now considering doing Aliens in 3D. Um, now, what I wanted to get at here is he's making me a little bit angry, to be honest, because I think he's missing the point of why these films are busy. I don't think it's because they're in 3D, Pete. Mm. I think it's because they are classic films released at the cinema and people want to see it at the cinema. I think he's getting completely the wrong end of the stick and I don't understand why he's doing it. What do you think? Yeah, I think I'm basically with you, man. Um, I've heard some murmurings to the same kind of effect that people are a bit concerned actually about the Terminator 2 3D elements and how that's actually going to play out and whether it's going to slightly spoil bringing that back to the cinema. So I think, you know, it it's not possible to put something like that into IMAX format, which for me would be sort of ideal mm. if you could bring it back in that format. But obviously you can't retroactively do that. Um, in which case I would just prefer that it's on a good quality, you know, 2D setup. Yeah, remaster it, don't get me wrong. Like, remaster it, yeah. that's fine. There's, you know, there's a few issues with Terminator 2. There's oh, oh, there's some obvious scenes where the stuntman is not Arnold Schwarzenegger on the motorbike. Um, I'm sure there's, there's. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of Terminator 2. There are people out there that would destroy my knowledge of it, don't get me wrong. There's other issues that maybe, like, it's quite nice when don't I think films a, are clean. Do you have a friend? I don't know if he's a listener to this, but a friend who's got, like, Terminator 2 collectibles throughout. He's but... got two life-size Terminators, yes. Yeah, so maybe yeah. he's in that small category. Yeah, oh, absolutely, experts. yeah. Yeah, he was, no, he was, I think he was the first to book for the, uh, the screening in Cheltenham that we're going to, so... Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think he'll probably be able to say the things that do need correcting. And I don't mind sometimes when they go back and clear up films and certainly remaster them and, and hopefully it will look nice. But I just think, I just, I genuinely think if you took a straw poll of the people that have booked for it, and certainly in Cheltenham, I think there's about four seats left when I looked the other day. I don't know why I have this thing now where I check how busy bookings are, but I, I seem to start doing this. I just get sadder and sadder as my life goes on. But I do do that. And there was about four or five seats left. But I would say if you, I would say probably... If you asked 80% of those people, are they going to see Terminator 2 in 3D, they would say, no, I'm going to see Terminator 2. So, James Cameron, you're obviously listening. Uh, just, you know, don't do Aliens again. Remaster Aliens. Go go to town with it. 4K remaster it. That would be fantastic. But don't put it in 3D, please. Just re-release it in cinemas again. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we had not long ago the um, Alien and then Prometheus double there, bill there was an Alien Aliens double bill the year before that which sure, is amazing and that's in 2D that yeah, was in 2D and that 2D looked as well, and sounded fantastic anyway so just just yeah just 2D just bring it back to 2D so so to bring a, a sort of positive out of a, a possible negative here um, we are obviously as Paul said both really excited about Terminator 2 and I'm sure a lot of other people are as well and the sort of ongoing release I think some, we'll feature review it as well we probably yeah, will and, and some classic films we did The Graduate not long ago because that was brought back to the cinema so it brought me to thinking Paul what if if anything comes to mind when you think of the one film you would choose to bring back to the big screen that maybe you, like you said before about Terminator you've never had the chance to see on the big screen uh, thank you so for asking Pete there appreciate that I have, you know when you just you feel like you're missing out on an in-joke and it sort of starts off as like intriguing and then just makes you feel alienated I've run out now. I've only and a got bit three. frustrated I only had three Ducktower references in my notes so we've run out of these now uh, no um, for me mm, let me think I don't know, you put me on the spot again. We've, I think we've had a similar conversation before. What would I like to see on the big screen again? I'll help you out and tell you what the right answer is. Well, for me, anyway, <laughs> um, I 
I'm sorry yeah, if I've made the same point in the past, but um, Mulholland Drive, to, to have the Club Silencio scene uh, of the, that theatre whilst being in a theatre is something that I've never experienced. It's one of my favourite films of all time and it would be incredible to see that on a big screen, so I'd love it. If anyone wants to sort that out like for an upcoming birthday or anything, book out a screen, put on Mulholland Drive, invite me and my four I'd to five to friends I'd then come to that do it. I hope we're still friends after the Dark Tower references have sunk you know sunk like a <laughs> so what have you got man Jack Jack uh, help Texas Chainsaw Massacre Texas Chainsaw we saw go. it in the downstairs dark room of a pub didn't we it's not quite the same no it isn't we did yes but it wasn't quite, quite on the, the big screen no. it was on like a 32 inch flat screen <laughs> yeah, yeah. on the wall with, with no not other not that we don't viewers. appreciate people putting on Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a pub of course Jack for you does anything come to mind one film to be brought back to the cinema from before your time no, that's just a all the very films. difficult question. All Some the films, films that I haven't seen. Yeah, something from the sort of mid two thousands, just before you. Were... <laughs> oh, Every week we're shoehorning this in. Yeah, I like this. No, yeah, it's this good. joke is not gonna. Leave this room. It's better than my Dark Tower joke, so yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think. Rocky Horror Picture Show is a is a curveball that I didn't uh, expect. My hand's gone up. Okay. Never seen it. Oh really? They're playing at yep. the Swan, actually. Would you go and drag? I probably would, yeah. I think it'd be quite funny. Do you just want to have a reason to go out and drag? Because yeah, it's okay so, to yeah. say that, you know. It you don't is, need yeah. Cineworld to help you out with your lifestyle. I've done it on more than one occasion, yeah. um, so it's quite enjoyable. Well, on that <laughs> bombshell, um, I think that's enough for In the Foyer. Uh, so we will be back with our popcorn reviews after this. And we're back with this week's popcorn movies. Uh, Pete, you get an extra popcorn movie this week because you wanted one and didn't bother seeing The Dark Tower. That's correct, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I get an extra one as a prize for being too lazy to see both of the feature films this week. <laughs> that is right. That's the way things work around here at Strangers in the Cinema. So uh, I'm going to kick us off with um, a documentary, uh, incidentally or coincidentally, about um, cheating. Uh that is Icarus. Icarus is this thing that probably everyone's seen popping up on Netflix because they throw money behind it. Had a it. very good trailer. The yeah. trailer was superb for this thing. Yeah, so the hook is this. Um, the filmmaker is a man called Brian Fogel. Brian Fogel is a very serious but amateur cyclist who decides that he's basically... I think the documentary he was going to make was something like a super-size me for performance-enhancing drugs. Okay. So right, so you, you get the idea, right? He decides that he's going to see between competing in a, a particular, really tough-looking cycling uh, race contest one year, and then the next year, he's going to see what difference it makes if he cycles onto a program of PEDs and, and steroids and, and uh, hormone replacement treatment and all the kinds of things that athletes Which sounds quite interesting. Might do yeah. to get an advantage, right? So. In the pursuit of this um, investigation, he teams up with anybody and everybody that he can who might give him some insight into like the best program to use, how to do this in a somewhat healthy way, and maybe even how to hide his tracks in case there is any random drug testing at the event at which he's going to compete. Um, that's where the film changes direction because one of the people that he's put in touch with is a man called Dr. Grigory Rodchenkov and it turns out that Rodchenkov is... Was he Russian? He's Russian. <laughs> he's actually the... I feel like... I feel like... I think he's the 
or was the operating head of Russia's anti-doping organization, working sort of in conjunction with WADA, who were, there's WADA and USADA are like the two big governing bodies when it comes to athletic doping and anti-doping, right? And from this point on, um, he takes the advice of this man you know even goes as far as like getting the guy over to the states to like show him how to like keep his urine samples frozen and like test them in a particular order to determine like how much he can take when so he can he's, take he's it talking like, to the right man basically the very yeah. elite <laughs> the of, very of best of the doping yeah. slash anti-doping and that's the whole thing right this guy is the head of anti-doping but he's actually sort of the, the czar of doping as it turns out he then falls brian fogel i would say by almost complete accident falls into the center of a giant storm because around this time is when the the circle is closing in on the russian athletic team's um, rampant doping and instead of getting the supersize me of you know doping I was for say, that's not the film that the, the trailer yeah you, you get instead this film that, that delves into this guy and into he becomes a sort of like edward snowden figure in hiding because putin might you know have harsh words to say for him slash poison his tea um <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting documentary just because the material is like so juicy and the amount that you learn about the stuff surrounding the withdrawal of the Russian athletes from the last Olympics is astonishing. Some of that information is just incredible and I won't spoil it here. I wouldn't say that it's like a brilliantly made documentary, but it's not bad. And because that subject matter is so interesting, if you're interested in sports science, doping, and and you know uh, elite athletes and well, that I'm kind of really, thing, I'm not really, but I'm still kind of intrigued to see yeah. to see what this has to say there's, because there's I think because there. it was such a big because it's become such big news. I think whether you're into athletics or not, I think you're going to have an opinion on it. I think so. Yeah, truth um, is the new banned substance, apparently. But yeah, I oh, mean, nice, it is. Nice. It is, is the that docu- you or is that the? It tagline? is the tagline. Okay. Yeah, it's the docu- kind of documentary that you'll come out of thinking like probably every top level prof- professional athlete is doped up to the eyeballs. Right. Like it is going to make you more cynical. But yeah, check it out. It's Icarus and it's streaming on Netflix. Paul, what have you got? Uh, we're going away from documentary filmmaking uh, and right back to 1972. Uh, I saw John Borman's Deliverance for the very first time this week. Um, I don't know why it's taken me so long to get to this, but as we said, everyone's got those gaps, and this certainly was a glaring omission of mine. Um, this, for anyone who's not aware, and I imagine everyone is, uh, it stars John Voigt and Burt Reynolds, uh, and they take a sort of outdoor pursuit stroke canoeing trip into the uh, rural southern states, uh, and it doesn't go very well for them, would be a good way to <laughs> yeah, put it. Yeah, it's fair I think. to say. Um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very taut effective thriller i think i would say have you seen this pete just to uh... i have yeah and, and i feel a, a little bit that i should um pipe up from a boy ned Beatty as well because obviously he's part of the party and he's just an yes. actor the, the actor that ends up squealing like a pig uh who i came across through homicide life on the streets so uh, okay. i have a lot of love for him and ronnie cox is in this as well who of course was in robocop um, the other the other member of the party yeah I think it's 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 a grim film for sure and I think I was kind of expecting that to be fair you know I, if you if you haven't heard of the film uh, Pete's just alluded to the, the squirrel piggy squirrel the, the sort of male on male rape scene which is has lost I say lost none of its power I didn't see it first time around so it, it's, it certainly retains its power as a as a you know as a sort of classic grim Hollywood scene 
um, and it, it certainly gives the film a lot of it gives the film a lot of weight. Um, the other thing I really liked about this is you've got the Burt Reynolds character in this picture. Remember the Burt Reynolds character? He's kind of like the the obvious alpha male, yeah. kind of in the vest top. You're like actually. Who would fuck with this guy like Burt Reynolds is basically the, the hillbillies and no match with Burt Reynolds. What I find very interesting is they actually, about midway through, they take him. They don't. He doesn't get killed off, but they take him out of the game. He's injured for most of the film, mm. which leaves you with the certainly much less alpha male character played by John Voight, who uh, certainly early on in the film uh, is struggling to even pull an arrow and fire an arrow at a deer. So when he's fighting for his life, uh, I think it gives it gives the film a much more interesting twist than it would have done had it just been Burt Reynolds alpha male sort of fighting off the fighting off the bad guys. So I really like that really like that about it. Um, and again, it's it's another one of those those nineteen seventies films. And I learned a bit about this, and I'm not going to bang on about it by to any stretch. But it's it's another one of those nineteen seventies films that's impacted by um, the sort of Ameri the ur American urban dwellers. Um, I'll go at this point. We're going more and more into the countryside and encountering rural folk that they didn't really understand their way of life and you had a, a sort of a number of films like this i think last house on the left there was factors in that texas chainsaw massacre again is another one and deliverance is certainly another one, one of those films where it's just kind of represents urban america's fear of the rural yeah quite I mean, interesting it's so. interesting you mentioned that as well because that i feel like is a thing that sort of came back with that glut of kind of a fear of like kids in hoodies films that yeah. came out about 10 years ago and eden stuff lake. like eden lake yeah them the french we got like, Wales, like french bougie one. couples who yeah. are out of their comfort zone and, and have to yeah. try and sort of survive against yeah i think that you know and actually yeah it's it's, it's funny you said that eden lake did cross my mind when i was watching this although it's slightly different because it's not kids in in deliverance but yeah, eden lake cross my mind. this is also i think certainly a big influence on um, Walter Hill's Southern Comfort as well, which mm. is uh, National Guard are on exercise and ended up getting hunt hunted by hillbillies. So um, yeah, I'm I'm glad I've seen it. It didn't disappoint me. It's really um, tense as well. Isn't it, it is really tense, and it's, it's it's a grim it's a grim watch, but it needs to be a grim watch. Uh, and I liked it a lot. So yeah, Deliverance. So um, I'm going to give myself the chance to butcher another name this week because my second film is L, but this time L as in plural women um e-l-l-e-s um which is or was directed by malgazata zmovska let's go with zmovska uh yes a director i don't really know much about judging by the way i've pronounced I was about that to say, i'd like to say i could correct you there because you've done it to me enough but i'm going to give you that as a, a bold effort and i will leave that alone because i don't think i could pronounce it any better so well yeah this one is essentially a, a vehicle for juliette binoche um it tells a story of a woman who works as a journalist who wants to investigate or needs to investigate uh, Paris prostitution um and the girls who work in the oldest profession in the world and particularly through the lens provided by two particular girls that she meets and then gets sort of drawn into that circle um, and learns some things about herself as well as about their profession. I sound a bit jaded because I feel like it's a story that we've seen done before and I feel like we've seen it done by people from the outside looking in and sort of cherry picking elements for maybe slightly salacious um, or with a slightly salacious motivation, maybe. Um, the the performances are good. Um, the the setup's fine, but I just feel this thing doesn't really penetrate. Um, no pun intended. Doesn't really penetrate. That's a relief. Below the surface, because yes, 
okay like that we've got sort of gender politics that seem t lifted right out of sort of the 1970s that are being wrestled with quite openly here um, by the central character and the way that she then like looks at her own husband and maybe is contemplating the idea th this not new idea that sort of all relationships are um, tantamount to rape and, and stuff but I just don't feel the, the film has enough to say about the topic to take it beyond the kind of exteriors and how Is it a bit voyeuristic then more than In a very classy French art house way it is kind of voyeuristic I would recommend something like Jeune et Jolie the um, uh, film from the director whose name has of course slipped out of my head just as I've said <laughs> that the guy who made In the House Oh, Francois Ozon. Thank you very much. That uh, was bad. That, that was very good. <laughs> from Francois Ozon from a couple of years ago, uh, a little bit better, but in a similar wheelhouse. I'd also recommend something like Afternoon Del Delight with Juno Temple, which yeah. I think I talked about on the show, um, for something a bit more contemporary that does some of the th similar sort of thematic things. But yeah, disappointing for me. I like Juliette Binoche a, a lot, but there's not a lot below the surface in L. That's from 2011. Incidentally, Paul, what have you got? I've got Lady Macbeth, um, which I've been very excited to see because it's one of those ones, and I know I bang on about it, and I'm going to continue banging on about it, that was on limited release earlier in the year, so we couldn't get to the cinema to see it. Um, however, it is now out, it is available, which is great, and it is great. Um, to set the scene, it's not about Shakespeare's Macbeth, necessarily. Um, it's uh, Basically, it focuses on a young woman played superbly by fairly newcomer Francis Pugh, um, who is married, kind of clearly sort of bought into or forced into a marriage to a man twice her age. Uh, he then is called away on business and she then starts um, an affair with one of the servants or one of like the, the hands on his property, really. Um, to say any more than that would, would certainly spoil what happens. Um, it's an incredibly incredibly well shot film it just every scene looks absolutely stunning i think it's a it's a first time director and a guy called william oldroyd and if this is this is his first film this is staggering absolutely staggering um it's sparse and uncompromising it's very very dark in places and it, you know if you if you are sort of uncomfortable with darker themes then probably stay away from this one but it's a it's a very very effective i would say probably thriller stroke drama but yeah, highly, highly recommended. And both France, Florence Pugh and William Oldroyd are certainly going to be talents to watch for the future. I would recommend both of you seek this out as soon as you possibly can. Mm. Very nice. There's some other credit called Best, but it doesn't seem like you've done very much. It's a short Best. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. British director, though. So, yes, yeah. it's British film. So, yes. I think this and, this and um, the levelling... Uh, show that British film is in rude health because the levelling was superb as well but we'll probably talk about that in another episode but yeah cool. certainly two great British films from this year stroke late last so yeah what have you got next Pete? I have uh, Sexy Beast which you were talking about Deliverance something you haven't seen and you know the, the time's passed Sexy Beast came out can you believe it 17 years ago the year 2000 no. um, directed by Jonathan Glazer I'd never caught up with this and I'll tell you for why I'm not a big fan of the gangster film uh, at all. or, or uh, <laughs> I am part of the premier betting company in the world or whatever he says like on every single football match or, place a bet now yeah. <laughs> what are you doing son uh, but you know, Ray Winston is who we're talking about. In this I, case, anyone I tried to go into this without any sort of, you know, pr sort of prejudging too much. And to be fair, I loved Under the Skin so much that 
it's silly not to follow up on everything that Jonathan Glaze has done before. I've seen music videos in Birth and, and that film, but never this. Ray Winston's really good for a start. Um, I shouldn't be so surprised he's been good in other places. Um, Scum, it was, I think. Where he yeah, he's, he's, he's really good. exceptional in Sexy Beast, though, to be fair. Given the right role, and this is sort of perfect for him because he's sort of a slightly ageing, uh, sort of hard but maybe with a softer side type of a character. Um, the film starts quite audaciously, for those who haven't seen it, this is the first couple of minutes, with a sequence in which he's sort of baking on a lilo in the middle of a swimming pool in Spain. He's obviously moved out there to get away from the, well, the, the shit life in England, as he basically explains. But um, he's then almost hit by a falling boulder, which ends up landing in his swimming pool and acts as a fairly pivotal um, piece of... of uh, I don't know, the pieces being moved in a fairly tactical way, I suppose, by the director and the source material. But um, that boulder scene itself, I think, is the one moment maybe where this film stumbles a little bit. There's one sort of direct effect shot that they had to do on the boulder rolling down the hill that just looks weirdly out of place. <laughs> like, it looks like a sort of creature feature from, like, years and years ago. Uh, but he gets away with it because Jonathan Glazer is just so... Um, skilled at transitioning between sequences and sort of blending elements seamlessly throughout the film that coming in as something of a cynic uh, on gangster films I was swept along by Sexy Beast uh, also great performances I think from first of all Amanda Redman who is his yeah. partner um, in this and I did all kinds of reading about her afterwards I just find her an interesting screen presence at Amanda Redman um, and then, of course, uh, Ian McShane, as with anything to do with like being a hard man and British, you've got to have Ian <laughs> yeah. McShane in the background doing something. And then, of course, Sir Ben of Kingsley, sitting with the straightest back I've ever <laughs> seen on film um, and just intimidating the life out of everyone in his but this vicinity. Is, this, for me, is what works about Sexy Beast, is that Ray Winston does not play characters who are intimidated. And the, the way he certainly the way he's framed at the beginning of the film is not as a character that would be intimidated by anyone. Mm. So when Ben Kingsley turns up and like scares the shit out of him, that's what really works for me about Sexy Beast. Is you've got Ray Winston's character scared. Well, it's, it's all about sort of levels in yeah. this, isn't it? Like levels, like the the guy can actually be talked down to by like the real guy, yeah. and you get to learn that hierarchy sort of as you proceed through the thing. But there's also a high scene that's, that's submerged and cool. Uh, that, shot, the, shot well. Yeah, the underwater high scene is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, it, it's not going to you know go into my top ten of, of films of all time or anything like that. But considering I pretty much loathe gangster films uh, for the most part Jonathan Glazer did a fine job this was him you know as a 35 year old director or something like that and you could see or already the signs that he was going to go on to sort of bigger and better things so um, check it out if you haven't seen it Sexy Beast from 2000 yes um, right next up then we've got Jack uh, you are reviewing uh, it was uh, a Twitter user at Chilo35 uh, gave you some homework Jack so thank you for the listener feedback uh, Jack, you were given what? What were you given, Jack? I'm sure you can. You're capable so, of speech. Yes, I am. <laughs> uh, so I was given the game, which came out in 1997. Uh, is this is David. This is David Fincher. David game, Fincher, yeah, yeah uh, and stars Michael Douglas and Sean Penn. Um, Michael Douglas being the main character in it. Three words: strange, mind fuck. Um, yes, I was totally lost with this film to start with. Um, <laughs> It was a bit like when I knew what was going on, I didn't know what was going on. So like every little twist in this film was just off the wall. Um, 
but absolutely one of the best films I've seen in a recent time. So thank you for the listener. That was a classic, really good film. Did but, you? I mean, I would. Can we? There's a twist. I don't. We'll, we'll try not to spoil it because there might be people out there who haven't seen it. Um, and the twist uh, for me, I didn't see it coming. The final twist at the end. No, it's a boulder like, rolling down. Yeah, yeah, it literally yeah. is a boulder that can knock your head clean off. <laughs> Did you see it coming from the sound of it? You didn't. No, I didn't. I think with this film, I knew. I thought I knew what was going on, and then suddenly it would just change. And I think it's. I think it's a great film. It, I think it, it it's, works it's, so well. Seems yeah. to be not not widely. People talk about Finch. Still talk about Fincher a lot, and yeah. a lot of people kind of talk. Of, a lot of people talk about Fight Club. A lot of people talk oh, about absolutely. Seven, and, and right, rightfully so. To be fair, that the game for me seems to be quite often forgotten in sort of Fincher discussions, which I think is a bit of a shame because I remember. I remember it had your reaction. I ended it, and I was just like, "Whoa, my brain is a mess," but that was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> right. So well, whether that- or not it holds up to second or third viewings, probably not as much although I would be shirking my responsibilities if I didn't enter the discussion to say that mindfuck is actually one word because it's a compound I noun waiting for you I was waiting move for on that. move yeah. on okay. that's, that's <laughs> fine I'll, I'll rethink that for my next review when I come up with three words yes but what we will say though and this is what you've got to give Jack credit for here you might have said that mindfuck is two words but he didn't at any point use the word interesting in that review of the game true and he so. didn't sum it up by saying it was worth a watch yes and uh, like me he didn't say sort of or kind of about 15 <laughs> yeah. times so in that review good so. job there so basically uh, what remains on the table is listeners if you want to pick him another piece of homework you're more than welcome to um, if not then he still has to watch Cabin Fever I need to leave Cabin Fever on the table for just it's in there. case, uh, yeah, it's I there. think I probably will end up watching it's it at some point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, if anyone else wants to send homework, that's great. We thank you to I said Chilo thirty five on Twitter. So anyone else get in touch with us, that would be great. Uh, that about wraps up popcorn movies. Uh, we'll be back after this with feature reviews. So that brings us to features, feature reviews, and as we've pointed out already, I haven't entirely pulled my weight this week, so Paul's going to take the lead. Um, in fact, Paul's basically just going to do all the work when it comes to reviewing The Dark Tower, but I will try to set it up based primarily, nay, solely on reading something so off the I internet. I did say they were over, but, so you could say, but by not doing your work this week, that you have forgotten the face of your father, Pete. Stop talking to me. Right. Uh, so, the last gunslinger, who is hilariously called Roland, Roland Deschain, has been locked in an eternal battle with Walter O'Dim, also known as the Man in Black, determined to prevent him from toppling the Dark Tower, which holds the universe together. It's a lot for one tower. Uh, with the fate of the worlds at stake, good and evil will collide in the ultimate battle, as only Roland can defend the tower from the Man in Black. Really, Roland? We've gone with Roland, that's the number one name. Anyway, that's a brief setup. Paul's going to come at you with a review, but first of all, here's a clip. These visions, as you call them. What do you see? I see a tower. The man in black. And the gunslinger. For thousands of generations, the gunslingers were knights. It's you. You're a gunslinger, right? There are no gunslingers. Not anymore. Why does the man in black want to destroy the tower? The tower protects both our worlds. If it falls, hell will be unleashed. You can't stop what's coming. Death always wins. It will kill him. 
for both of us. So not only have you not watched it, Pete, but you neglected to mention who directed it, who stars in it, uh, any of the really relevant information about the film. So you're welcome. You're welcome, I'm sir. Gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna throw that in there. So I think you pronounce his name Nicolage or Nicolas. So it's Nicolage Arcel is the director. Uh, it stars Idris Elba as Roland and Matthew McConaughey as the Man in Black. Uh, so that gives you an idea of, of the core cast. Um, just to give um, listeners at home a bit of context about The Dark Tower, you probably are aware that it is based on uh, a series of seven, and that is a very a key number here, seven uh, books by Stephen King um, that it tells a consecutive story. So it's quite a marathon read, and I love it. I really enjoyed reading through the books. Um, they're mental. They Some of them are inconsistent. It's some of Stephen King's finest work. He wrote it over about 30 or 40 about 30 years I think um, so yeah and there's lots of this it jumps around in it's, it's, it's the multi-dimensional stuff there's there's some really interesting kind of race relation elements in there um, some really interesting characters in there um, and could have been really really great source material for I'd say potentially some films in a TV series um, often thought of as unfilmable because of the amount it, it jumps about and certainly some there's some very very dark elements in the books um, that are handled very very well by Stephen King um, so yes, yeah, so I come at it from having the context of, of seven books, thinking that perhaps this may be, uh, although called The Dark Tower, this may be in fact an adaptation of just the first book, The Gunslinger. Um, Pete, the problem here is that for me, uh, I'm lost for words really, because this seems to me, and I'll tell you, they've claimed not this isn't the case, this seems to me that they've tried to pack in seven books, some of which are over 800 pages long, seven books into one 95 minute film yeah it usually goes the other way right that yeah. this would be stretched out into to uh, three or yeah. four four hour films or whatever but no they, they've tried to put seven books into one 90 minute film and surprise surprise it doesn't work and what's even more irritating to me uh is that they've got to get out of jail basically the, the way the books end and I, I won't spoil it it gives them a get out of jail free card basically so what they've claimed is that this isn't actually an adaptation of the books this is a sequel to the books and they've just started the story again can fuck right off they they can fuck right off i'm not having that they've it's it's nonsense the film i mean i struggle to find context and i've read all seven books so for anyone else in for, i feel sorry for anyone going to see this that that hasn't read the books i mean there's elements just come and go so quickly and it, it jumps around so the basically the dark tower is this thing that holds together all the dimensions and uh, Matthew McConaughey's character is trying to bring down the Dark Tower. Now that's quite a lot to get your head round, yet alone in a ninety-minute film. And then you've got you've got some you've got psychic people in there. You've got Roland and the Gunslingers. Now Roland and um, Roland the character the character of Roland in the books gets a whole book to set to set him up to start with. Then the 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 you've got the character of the boy who is in here basically gets most of a book to set him up. And again, these characters are set up in like ten minutes. So you're sitting there going, okay, the gunslingers are basic. The gunslingers are basically like knights, but like cowboy knights. So they've got this old system. They've been fighting against the man in black for many, many years. Their guns are made of Excalibur's sword, and it's it's all it's crazy stuff. Don't get me wrong; it's all out there. But they, and again, then there's a whole book about the history of the gunslingers. And what they try and do is they try and smash all this stuff into ninety minutes, and it just doesn't work. It's just. It's completely rushed. There's no context. There's whole scenes that are, again, sort of, I'd say, a hundred pages covered in the book. Like there's a, there's a scene in a house where the boy, the boy with psychic powers, don't know how he's got psychic powers, doesn't really matter according to the filmmakers, fights a demon in a house, 
and the house is a living demon, which is explained in the book. And in this, it's just bang and it's gone, bang and it's gone. There's so many things just squashed together, and the film makes little or no sense. And by the time the end comes around, you just you're just exhausted, and just because you don't know what's going on, and not in a good way. And it just so this seems bizarre, Paul, because it seems so so strange as you're saying that Stephen King is obviously an author that everybody is aware of. Yeah, the source material, even though I haven't read it myself, I'm aware of. Yeah, it seemed like the kind of prestige property that would deserve some kind of franchising out or whatever. And instead, it seems to have been rushed to the screen. I mean, is this just a cash grab, as far as you can see? But this because you've got yes. a built-in audience of fans of the yes. Of the the books, problem is, right? I think it is. But what frustrates me is studios keep doing this. They moan about their films losing money. You get the, you know, and they keep moaning about it. Well, it, it doesn't make the money. Well, fucking make something good. Right? I'm not being funny. Just make it good. Everyone involved, like Nicola Arcel, he's made uh, A Royal Affair, which I haven't seen. is supposed to be amazing. So he's had apparently some input in rewriting the script. Maybe, there might be, there's a two and a half hour director's cut out of this film, which uh, there must be because so much of it seems to be on the cutting room floor. But certainly, so Sony Pictures are in charge of this. So at some point, someone's looked at this and signed this off as a final cut for a film. Now, do you know what, Sony? They, your films deserve to lose money if you keep knocking out shit like this. There's no excuse for it. Everyone should know better. And as you say, there's a built-in audience for this, but surely you want to take it wider than the built-in audience of the books. Mm. And honestly, I, it's a shame you haven't seen it because I found there was a lack of context and I've read the book. So on, it just would be it would be baffling to anyone out there. It's, it's, a, it's a shit show, to be honest. I'm not impressed at all. Uh, just hugely, hugely disappointed. I thought it might be okay. Um, for Idris is quite good. Matthew Gonhay is quite good, but they're just not given enough to do. So, so here's an interesting thing, and something that you've mentioned off mic, but maybe I could bring up now. The people uh, I'll list them off who were in the running to take the role, and Idris Elba obviously won out. Were Daniel Craig, Christian Bale, Viggo Mortensen, Javier Bardem, and Mads Mikkelsen. You will notice about those gentlemen that they are all white and they've cast a black actor. Now, more power to Idris Elba. He's a fine actor in his own right. Is there any particular issue? Like, does that character need to be of a well, particular background or does is that irrelevant? Again, this is, you know, going back to what I was saying about when I, I touched on it very briefly, and thank you for bringing me back to this, because the books do something quite interesting with race relations, because the character of Roland in the books is white. There is another character who kind of, part of his quartet, as I was bringing up earlier, that he brings together, uh, who is, is who is integral in fact to the, the house, the, the scene with the demon in the house, which I was talking about. Um, she is a very angry and racist black woman who hates white people, so ultimately hates Roland, well she's schizophrenic in fact, and one of her characters is a racist woman who hates who hates Roland because he's white. Um, so that's that's quite interesting. Genuinely, how they handle that is quite interesting. How she comes on, over, overcomes that is one of the be- certainly one of the better elements of the books. So I thought, okay, well, if they've if they're changing the color of the lead character, fine. But actually, his race is quite important to the story. Okay, maybe they just do it the other way around. No, they've written it out completely. Mm. And like, again, it's like elements like that, that that don't make any sense. And in fact, that. The, the demons, the demon, the house demon scene that I'm, I'm talking about, there is like a, as I said, like a 50 page, the, in order for the house demon to be defeated, I believe if it's the same thing, like there's this whole like really savage rape scene that's in the book and it's just completely washed over in the film. Like, and it's, well, it's, 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 it's 12, 12A certificate. Yeah, they've just, they've, they've, they've cauterized it um, 
in a worse way than they did with Ghost in the Shell. Um, there's no brains in this at all, and it just—I don't know what—I don't know what they were thinking. I have no idea what they were well, thinking. Well, I'm sure you weren't under the illusion that you were on your own. But in case you were worried about that, this currently holds a 34% approval rating on Metacritic. Right. So I'm obviously not, not doing doing great no. guns in terms of uh, you know the general no. consensus. Um, it sounds like also J.J. Abrahams and Ron Howard were attached to the project at previous stages. And now this director, you've mentioned um, A Royal Affair was one of his previous works. Do you think that anyone could have done a better job with a 90-minute film? Like, no, if that's I a given. No, I don't understand why it's a 90-minute film. So and, that's the primary and issue. And foreign directors need to be stopped luring to Hollywood for money because it's just killing their careers. I mean, how many times has this happened now? Gavin Hood with the um, Wolverine Origins. Um, a guy... Um, Oh, I've completely forgotten his name. The guy who directed the Robocop remake, mm. um, who did such a good job with the Elite Squad films. Apologies, I've completely forgotten his name. You know, stop being lured to Hollywood to make studio dross. And unfortunately, this is just studio. This is just basically a studio produced drivel. And uh, here, you know. you'll enjoy this one, Paul. So uh, I think that the head. Screen, well, the writer of the screenplay for The Dark Tower, the adaptation. Um, previous credit, Transformers The Last Night. Oh, Akiva Bef- Goldsman, isn't it? Yes, before yeah, that, no. Rings. Before that, The Fifth Wave. Uh, yeah, all, all kinds of quality uh, bursting off the page. So, uh, Angels and Demons as well. Uh, the Da Vinci Code, and I could go on and on. So, yeah, real uh, mm, real powerhouse. Yeah. Uh, so, not not for you, I think we can no, say. No, and, and honestly, I... I, I I just thought, you know, I like the books. Even if this is a three-star adaptation, I'll be, I'll be fine. I'll be okay with that because it, it would be quite difficult to film. But glad they haven't tried. Mm. Uh, no, I'm out. Next. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a question for you. Yes. Um, what is your favourite book adaptation that's been made into a film? Oh Christ, that's a that's an on-the-spot question, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought that off the top of my head, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly is a marvelous adaptation of a book. Um, and I would say more ob- more obviously, and certainly more mainstream than that, would be the Lord of the Rings films. I thought they were I thought they were good. Yeah, Diving Bell and the Butterfly is interesting because it's Julian Schnabel, who's a an artist primarily, and not a filmmaker. And yeah. I don't think he's done anything feature length since. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, it, it was like you said, such a great adaptation. And and then you thought, you know, look out for the next thing that he does on screen. Yeah. But I don't know that it's arrived no. yet. And yeah, for me, I'll have to circle back to this one. No idea. Um, no, fair enough. Yeah, well, ne- maybe, maybe while in this little interlude, give it some thought. But if not, we'll be back after this interlude with a review of Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. So the second of our two feature reviews for this week is Detroit from director Catherine Bigelow, her follow-up to the divisive Zero Dark Thirty. Before you set this one up though, Pete, can I ask, have you seen this? You are entitled to ask that, and the answer is yes, I have. Um, yeah, I'm just hanging in there on this episode with, with one feature review. <laughs> yeah, um, this one tells the story of Detroit um, in the chaos of a sort of um, rebellion um, and sort of rampant police brutality. Uh, the focus, I suppose, of the narrative um, comes in on a group of African-American men who are holed up in the Algiers Hotel where they find themselves surrounded on all sides by police and then inside that hotel by some particularly hot-headed and out-of-control police officers, chief amongst them, a character played by Will Poulter. We'll come back to the setup, but here's a clip. 
Here in Detroit, a city of war. On the city's west side, a 150 block area is off limits to everybody. Hey, fellas, I'm going to that grocery store across the street. I come bearing gifts. It's a war zone out there. They're destroying the city. Army taking fire. Trust fire, trust fire. Near the Algiers Motel. Now let's not be stupid in this situation. You need to tell me where the gun is. Melvin, you want to go home? Yeah. What happened at the motel? So you can get from that some flavour of the, the territory that we're in here, which is fractious and um, uncomfortable and sort of crackling with energy, a lot of it negative, Paul. Um, the film obviously starts with this incident where a party, fairly innocuous party, is raided by the police. Um, and the treatment of the people who are thrown out of that party leads to a reaction, which leads to a reaction and a reaction. And the city kind of becomes this powder keg. Well, where, almost a war zone, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Where the, na the National Guard, well, yeah, absolutely a war zone, because the National Guard are actually uh, tasked with clearing the streets, uh, keeping people on curfew, leaving your houses obviously not allowed at particular times. And then we get you know, this centrepiece to the film, which occupies roughly the middle third, which is maybe a little more than that, which is based at this hotel, motel, where um, a couple of members of this band, uh, the Dramatics, are trying to just enjoy their night, stay off the streets and stay out of trouble. It doesn't work out that way. And they're confronted by, yeah, as I said uh, before the clip, Will Poulter, more ferocious than you could ever imagine yes. Will Poulter could be, and um, uh, a cadre of other rogue cops. And then the presence of John Boyega, who's actually working in security across the road, but gets embroiled in this situation, maybe not through choice, but through a sort of sense of responsibility and just gravitational pull, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, how should we kick this thing off? I mean, obviously not an easy subject matter, um, Catherine Bigelow doesn't really go in for easy subject matter um, or comfortable subject matter. Did this? Did you go into this with any particular expectations of what you were going to see? I think I got what I expected, and that's not necessarily that's not to say it's a bad thing in the slightest. I think Kath, for me, Catherine Bigelow is one. Of, I would say, well, certainly is one of my favourite directors working at the moment. I think, I think I was perhaps slightly concerned. Um, and I know this has come up in some quarters about um, a white female director uh, directing a film about that's so heavily focused on issues of, of race relations. And maybe is, is it her place and necessarily tell this story? That I, I didn't feel that actually that was an issue with the film. I think it told a good story on that, and I think it did. It you know I think it's a it's weird. There's a few things. There's a few things I've heard about this where the, perhaps the, the people have accused it of the timing being bad because of the state of race relations in the U.S. at the moment. It's just like well, and then I, there I think was the timing's perfect in that. Sense. I think the time is perfect in that sense. But I'm just saying. I just wanted to yeah yeah highlight that, that I have heard this as well. And some people, you know, saying that oh, we've seen this all before with kind of like white guilt and that kind of thing. If you can't deal with your white guilt, tough shit. Like it still needs to be said. And I think. I thought I I really like the film um, as much as one can enjoy this kind of film because it is a very hard watch. Um, you mentioned earlier Will Poulter um, giving I think an absolutely terrifying performance in this, um, and I think initially, initially when I saw the trailer, I thought he looks he looks too young for the role. It doesn't make sense yeah, every minute. Maybe it would be a bit beyond his, his yeah and, range. And I just and I, but all the policemen were young and it, and I think if you if you read into the subject matter a bit more actually the policemen were very young at the time and should they be doing the job that they were doing probably not. 
Um, and I think actually he's he's terrifying in the role, and I think it's I think it's a big jump up for him in terms of performances I've seen him I mean, before. I'm not sure that he he obviously wants you know he wants his performance to stand out. The fact that he is a sort of rampantly racist cop maybe isn't what he wants attached to him for the rest of his career. But maybe that's better at this stage of his development than kid with weird eyebrows who gets stung in the nutsack, which is kind of what I would think <laughs> of him of from uh, Meet the Millers or Where the Millers or whatever that was. So yeah, I, I think it's a really strong performance. I mean. Yeah, first of all, positive things. I agree with you, I completely concur about Catherine Bigelow being such an interesting filmmaker and I think capable of so many different things in so many different genres. Mm. Um, I don't necessarily think, uh, as you were saying, Paul, as well, that the the fact that she is a white director um, sort of torpedoes this thing out, straight out the gate. I think that there's two sides to this situation, obviously, and the portrayal of the behaviour of the police who are predominantly if not entirely white also requires a certain level of you know deep consideration and, and skill and accuracy you know um, in order to to give a sort of window into a situation where you really feel like you're there when you're in that motel when mm. you hold up with the, those people um, there's a particularly powerful speech that the one guy gives you know where he's talking about what it feels like to be an african-american man yeah. and how you know it's as if someone in this room right now has a gun to your head and sort of pulls this off as a bit of a stunt which leads to I think there's a bit of license taken there with the storytelling but it sort of leads to this situation well in fairness they do say at the end they said that we don't know you know we don't what know happened what happened inside the hotel, the hotel yeah. uh, but you know and we have taken license to it we've, we've tried to be as accurate as we can be but obviously they have to take some they have to take some license mm. and in fairness it, although it uses uh, it does use um, classic what am I thinking of like um, news, news roll footage mm. it doesn't purport to be a documentary so obviously there are you know there are going to be some liberties taken with the story to make it work as a as a film in its own right. Yeah, some just beautiful stuff that Catherine Bigelow does uh, visually as well with, with things like reflections and mirrors and two-way mirrors and, and yeah, uh, re really artistic framing of certain shots, I think. Now, this sort of brings me on to, to something I do want to talk about as well, which is the last third of the film ends up as a sort of courtroom drama wrestling backwards and forwards with the events that we've just seen play out. And I felt like if anything's a misstep, maybe it was that section. I'm not sure that that's the director's strong suit is handling that material. Mm. And I think the immediacy of the situation that we saw in the, the as the centerpiece of this film, it carried with it a lot more weight than seeing, you know, and I, I don't want to sort of call one actor out, but seeing John Krasinski with slightly strange hair standing up in, in a courtroom and, and sort of holding forth. I thought that section, it, it threatened to sort of take a bit of the power away yeah, from, I think, from this I, film. I think I would agree with that. And I think also that, that section, Quite heavily sidelined John Boyega's character, and I think jo John Boyega's character is, you know, is the is the conflicted Afri African American security guard who, obviously, was not cool with what the police were doing, but didn't speak out against the police necessarily and do take sort of. Well, he sort of finds himself between a, a rock and a hard place, yeah. doesn't he? With, but he, he, role. I think, is one of, certainly one of the more interesting characters in the film, and I think the second half, the second half certainly sidelines him, or maybe final third, as you say, certainly sidelines him, which is a bit of a shame because I, I really like him as an actor and I really like him in this. Um, yeah, and but going going back to that specifically, I would agree with you. I think the the events in the hotel or in the motel are so superbly handled, and it's so tense for so long. Not quite up there with the best of the the best of the scenes in the Hurt Locker, but it's still very tense. That I think afterwards, especially the transition between the siege, for want of a better description, uh, and the courtroom, I think it feels a little bit anticlimactic. 
mm. and you, you kind of you've lost it loses some of its energy as it as it goes into the courtroom scenes as it ends i think it picks up again towards the end but still loses some of its energy that it's built yeah and i mean we we can't skip over and this isn't about some sort of like white guilt or whatever as, as you mentioned before but um just the very fact that like a film like this i say it has that immediacy where it this is 1967 this is like 50 years ago that's it mm. and it's quite literally unimaginable to me what it does feel like to be in that situation where you know you, you can't even imagine it you know coming from the perspective that we are that you go to a party on like a saturday night you get busted out of there by the police for very little and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of something that's so beyond your control and the very color of your skin is going to is going to lead to just being utterly terrified for your life mm. let alone your your freedom from incarceration so yeah i found this to be more powerful at, at sort of um displaying that i suppose through events through interactions between characters than you know a lot of other stuff that maybe has touched on on a similar topic so yeah i don't i don't think the film lost its power but as we were saying maybe a little of that power is is taken away by the way that it's handled in later stages perhaps yeah i think i think yeah i, I would agree with that i think the, the court case needed to be there i just maybe it should have come a little bit sooner i don't know it, it's it's very difficult to say to be fair because obviously you're not there you're not there making the film but overall, um, Pete, I'd, I'd like this a lot. I think there's there's a lot to take away from this. There's some great performances in it. I think the the urgency of the film, you, you obviously all the all the marketing has been all this. You must, you need to see this film. This is an important film. I genuinely think it is, and I think it, it serves as a, a timely reminder of, and especially at the moment with um, the way race relations are in the US, and so hopefully, hopefully to a lesser extent in this country. Actually, I think I don't think it, uh, there's any harm in being reminded of what things were like just as a, a cautionary tale as it and, were because we and, don't want to be back there again and so. look at detroit now 50 years on it's gutted yeah. it's absolutely gutted i mean it, it almost made those times in this one where i think it, you know to, to go back and watch something like roger and me and see the mm. way that you know michael moore came up with this uh, this general motors expose yeah. in the late 80s I, I suppose yeah. that that focuses on on michigan and the way that the heart was ripped out of the place and you know a big part of that history, a huge part of that history, is the fractious race relations mm. and is the number of people who suffered like brutality way beyond anything that should ever be acceptable. So, yeah, a, a strong recommendation, I think, from both of us, it's fair to say. Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're trying to keep it positive because we recommended the film, but obviously it, it's a grim, it's not an easy watch. Would, yeah, yeah, and I would say as a, as a sort of other positive here, Paul, um, if you get hold of the soundtrack I think there's an unofficial soundtrack through stuff like Spotify that I got a handle on I don't know if the official soundtrack has actually dropped yet but like the Motown music on this thing is, is just fantastic and it reminds you how incredible the music scene at that time really was so um, yeah not only the dramatics themselves who were a real group who are depicted in the film but all kinds of other artists surrounding that scene are just so worth looking into as well if you haven't previously so yeah pretty strong recommendation I think for yeah Detroit. No, I liked it it's good certainly good right well that's about it for this week um next week we will be back with i think american made and logan lucky i think is the plan at the moment because they are both out friday so we will do our best to get to those won't we pete i'm excited about both of those <laughs> yeah man and there's even rumors of a, a japanese anime that might yes in there your as well. name well we're going to see your name in imax on wednesday aren't we correct well, so i'm very excited about that that should be that should be good i've seen that and uh, yes it's a very good film so yeah three feature reviews in fact next week then pete my, my apologies i got my work cut out 
out. I've got to get on yes. it. I'm gonna gonna leave in a second. I'm off to the cinema, <laughs> yeah. right, lads? Uh, but for now, that's it. So um, yeah, if you've enjoyed the show, let us know. Talk to us on uh, Twitter at Stranger Cinema, uh, Instagram Strangers in a Cinema. Um, we will try not to have an hour and a half of setup in advance next week, and may have a bit more enthusiasm than we've had this week. But for now, uh, it's goodbye from me, Paul. Uh, it's goodbye from me, Pete. Goodbye from me, Jack. If you. Have-